is just, to me, it's so important just to stop, take your time, feel the breeze, smell the scents, listen to the sound, and just kind of get yourself in tune with the environment. And pretty soon, if you keep This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are heading to the American West. We are talking landscape photography. We're talking medium and large format, and one of the country's, if not the world's, best landscape photographers. Today, we're talking with Lynn Radica. Lynn, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks, Scott. Well, and thank you for joining us. I am looking forward to this because I love the work you do. We're talking straight out of the tradition of Ansel Adams here. And as a matter of fact, you've got some connections there. But black and white, beautiful desert landscapes. Everybody that's listening, of course, there is a website. And if you get a chance, I'd like you to go there uh, as soon as you possibly can. It's radicaphotography.com, R-A-D-E-K-A photography.com, all is one word, and you are going to see some of the most inspiring and technically proficient and really sort of jaw-dropping landscape images of the American West that you're ever going to see. Lynn, what what drew you to landscape work at the very beginning? How'd you get started and going outside? Well, the interesting thing is, is back in the 1968 and 1969, I began looking through photography books because I just started to get an interest in photography in general. And I noticed that the photographs, they really spoke to me. They really stood out that I just had to keep staring at had the name Ansel Adams under them, or Wynne Bullock, or a handful of others, but it was generally Ansel Adams' images. And of course, not knowing who Ansel Adams was yet, I thought to myself, oh, this lady is pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that it was a... uh, male name. Mm-hmm. But um, eventually, my parents bought me a uh, Minolta SRT-101 camera for a graduation gift in 69. And that really got me started. And uh, I started attend lectures by Ansel Adams at colleges and universities in the area. And I got to meet him that way. And those lectures were just so, so inspiring. And watching the slideshows and hearing his descriptions of some of his images just blew me away. I mean, that really 
you know, really got me going. Oh, my. I, I am jealous. I, I wish I had the opportunity and probably the insight at the time to attend any of those lectures. I, I n- never, never got a chance. Do you remember the first shots that you took trying to work in that school? Uh, yes, I think one of the earliest shots that I'm still happy with is called Rock Forms, mm-hmm. Joshua Tree. And I did send you an image of that. And the date of that actual photograph is 1986 because it's a reshoot of an old negative from maybe 1970 or so before I started shooting 4x5. And that's an interesting print because when I eventually went up to meet with Ansel and several other master photographers, that's one of the two prints that they really liked. So it has special meaning to me. Oh, I'm looking at the print right now. It is a Mm -hmm. gorgeous print. For those that are listening, it, it, it... For lack of a better description right now, it is a rock formation in the foreground, some darker rocks in the back. It almost looks like the knuckles on a human hand, the way that the the rocks tumble over each other or uh, rise and fall into the distance. Why do you think this image, I mean, speaks to people? Is it the soft lines? Is it the, the shadow? Is it all of the above? I think it's the metaphor, actually. Most people that look at it say, oh, it's a bunch of butts sticking up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You said knuckles, but I suppose it could be that too. But I think it's it's the uh, metaphor of the image and the soft light caressing the edges of those shapes. I think that's one reason it's been a successful image. I consider it my oldest good image. Really? Well, I mean, I love the image. It strikes me as doing everything possible right, but I'm intrigued by you saying that what attracts people to it is the metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so often photographers talk to me and say what they're really photographing is an idea or a feeling or an emotion and it just happens to be rocks or or whatever that right. uh, con- conveys that. You mentioned a minute ago that you were dealing with 4 by 5 and you have been for the majority of your career, and, and a career I should tell everyone, I mean, you've been all over the place. You're in the world's top photographer's book. You've been in galleries all over uh, the U.S. and Europe. There are calendars. There, are, I mean, it's but you have dealt almost exclusively with medium and large format cameras until recently. Yes. If you were given a Minolta at the very beginning, why didn't you stick with that format? And how did you how did you go about adapting format to subject? Well, I, it didn't take long to realize that thirty five millimeter landscape work does not make very successful 11 by 14 or bigger prints with the kind of crispness and sharpness that I like to see in a print. 
Okay. And do you remember, do you remember your early work with those formats? How did it turn out? Well, the, uh, the photograph I just mentioned to you, the Rock Forms Joshua Tree, was originally shot in 35 millimeter. And a print of that is the one that I showed Ansel Adams and Wynn Bullock, and they both liked that print. In fact, Wynn liked it so much that he spent maybe five or ten minutes pointing to various areas of the image, discussing things like time and space relationships, which, of course, you know, I was a kid, you know, it went way over my head. But it was pretty <laughs> exciting to see a print that uh, had some meat to it, something below the surface that could uh, have some kind of a meaning beyond just taking it at face value. But now, now you're working with digital. Why the change? Well, mainly it's because around 2015 or 2016, I did felt that this uh, it's disease called essential tremor. And it made it very difficult for me to handle negatives in processing. You know, I would start scratching the negatives, and it was just very, very cumbersome for me to do that. Because when you handle wet negatives, you have to be extremely careful, especially sheet film. So fortunately, digital got to the point where it was, and, and still is, I think, a very acceptable form of photography in terms of quality that can be produced. If, if you had your choice, would you still be shooting film? Uh, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a strange answer. But uh, the good thing about digital is it's not as backbreaking. You can easily hike with a digital camera and a couple of lenses in your backpack. With a 4 by 5 of course, you know, that's three times the yep. weight and yep. many times the bulk. But I do miss 4 by 5 because I've worked with it for so long. It's like inborn in me. You know, it's in my blood. When I see people using 4x5 or 8x10 or 5x7 at my workshops, it's like I can instantly do the, the swings and tilts and, and the controls. It's like I never really forgot how to manipulate those functions. Oh man, and, and it's it's a shame. You know, it's not the shooting that's become an issue. It's the developing, and you have a reputation as a real master in the darkroom. You know, as as a matter of fact, you were entrusted with printing some of Ansel Adams' work. Yeah, um, 
Are darkroom skills still necessary? If you're an 18-year-old coming into the photography world right now, do you need to know what HC-110 is and what an enlarger does? And well, I do think that it's helpful because it gives new students a basis, kind of a basic understanding of where photography came from. And it shows them alternatives that I think are a great learning experience. Exposure, contrast, development. If they get those concepts down, I think digital is going to come much easier. I agree with you 100%. I think it's going to come much easier. I also think, curious to get your, your reaction here, that film teaches a kind of patience that digital does not reward. I was out with I was out with a friend of mine just last weekend. Uh, he was shooting with an old Hasselblad. He's got you know the film canisters. In the time that we were out there, I took probably three hundred shots digitally. He, he took probably thirty, but he took he took the time to set up each shot that I never did. Is patience a lost skill? You think for photographers and especially landscape photographers? Oh, I think so. I think so. And I think patience is one of the keys for doing good work in photography. Patience as well as awareness. And I try to teach my uh, workshop students about awareness in photography. And that's something that I learned from Barbara Bullock Wilson, who was Wynne Bullock's daughter, and she wrote a book about Wynne Bullock, and there's an excellent chapter on awareness in that book, and it's just, to me, it's so important just to stop, take your time, feel the breeze, smell the scents, listen to the sound and just kind of get yourself in tune with the environment. And pretty soon, if you keep practicing those things, you're going to be kind of what Ron Gout would say, in the zone. In the zone, (laughs) yes. You know, you start seeing images all over the place. And it's such a fulfilling feeling. But Lynn, you you just gave a description of non-visual sensory awareness. You said smell and listen. So why do the other senses matter if our medium is 100% visual? No, I think the other senses are part of it. If you take photograph without considering the feeling at the moment, the wind blowing, you might miss some photographic opportunity with that subject that might enhance the quality of the subject. Or it might help you to see the subject in an entirely different way. I've got uh, a photograph called Abandoned Building. And it's a photograph of this building front with two black windows and a glowing white 
door, but in the foreground there's these tall grasses that are blowing in the wind. Well, I recognized that the wind was blowing so hard, I thought, gee, you know what, I'm going to let the wind work for me for this image. And it really, I feel, produced a very unique and successful image because the grass is blurry. So it almost looks like a, a sea of grass blowing in the wind with the stark symmetrical building in the background. Oh, that's 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 remarkable. And you know, I want to talk to you about sort of hard and soft texture subjects here for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but let, let, let's let's jump over to another one of your images. Um, it's the first one on your web page under galleries for black and white. It's mm-hmm. one of the ones that you sent me as one of your personal favorites. And that's the moon over Zabrinsky uh, point. Walk me through the history of that shot, you know, how it came to be and, and what people have said about it once it came out. Okay, that's an interesting image. I shot it in 1980, I believe, and I was very excited about the image, although it was a very hazy day. So I had somewhat low expectations, but I just I knew that the moon was in there and the clouds were interesting and the Lighting was interesting. So when I tried to print it, I wasn't happy with print quality. I wasn't happy with composition. So I tried to do various different compositions, like a vertical framing of it. And I sat with that for months at a time on my... uh, gallery while at home looking at it, living with it, and it just it just failed. I just couldn't accept it. So I pretty much put the negative away for ten years. Oh my. And then yeah, and ten years later I was in communication with the Death Valley Natural History Association, and they had asked me to do a black and a white poster, particularly of Zabriskie Point. And I had totally forgotten about what I thought was a failed image. So I said, oh, gee, I'm going to have to pack up and get back there and see if I can shoot something, <laughs> which I didn't do because my brother-in-law, who was helping me with quite a bit of my uh, darkroom work, said, about that image with the moon in it, and I was like scratching my head going, what image with the moon in it? it it's got manly beacon at the moon. I said, oh, yeah, I think I remember that. It was funny. I just kind of wiped it out of my mind because I considered it a failure. So... I looked at the negative, and instantly I could see the possibilities. 
that I could not see 10 years before because prior to that time, I was not as good a printer. Mm -hmm. So this was roughly 1990. And about that time, I had learned of contrast masking techniques that were invented by Dr. Dennis McNutt, who was one of my mentors. And um, his articles were just totally eye-opening. And knowing those methods, I knew what I could do with that print. And sure enough, I made a successful print, kept working with it, and to this day, I you know, I keep tweaking it. I keep changing the workflow with masks somewhat slightly because it is kind of fun to keep producing new interpretations of the same negative. But I'm very happy with prints that I'm currently making. Well, th- this is a this is a breathtaking image, and you mentioned the contrast masking, which you teach. You've got people that go to your website are going to see. You've got a whole product line here. One of the things I'm wondering about, though, is you know, a lot of people these days, you know, are really proud of capturing 99% of of their image in camera. Um, yeah. You know, they say, "Oh, I you know I, I you know spend maybe 30 seconds in Lightroom and that's it." Yeah. <laughs> and yet, those of us that grew up or at least started in a dark room. That's a real artistic moment there, too. Is there a tension that you see between the moment you press the shutter release and then either the dark room or the computer? Or, or should we be masters of both? I don't think so, as long as it's not done to the extreme. The same thing with using filters in Lightroom or third-party software to simulate, say, an orange filter or a green filter. I do that pretty frequently with my uh, digital images, but I try not to go too extreme to where it looks uh, like it was shot in a different planet or something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I, I know that. I want to come back to this image just one more time, though. then we'll move on to a couple others. You've got, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, and again, everyone, this is called Moon Over Zabriskie Point. It's from Death Valley. You've got so many different tonal layers in there, so many different shades of, of gray. All that was in the negative? All, all that was in the capture? That's, when I actually saw the negative, I thought, gee, this is a perfect negative. The moon is not burned out. There's a detail in the surface of the moon. There's detail in the shadows. This should be able to make really good print. But like I was saying, when I used my early, feeble, inexperienced attempts at printing, it wasn't my satisfaction. And we we have so many tools that experience brings us um, yes. f- for getting our, our visions realized. Talk to me about another one of your shots, uh, the Horseshoe Canyon shot. 
this is a, a large rock face to the on the right side of the image, and then a kind of cut or, or beginning of a canyon, perhaps on the left, with a very small tree sitting right there at the entrance. Tell me the history of this one. It's a beautiful shot. Let's see. I was hiking in the Horseshoe Canyon, which is, I think, one of the most photogenic canyons mm -hmm. in the American West. In my opinion, I think it was a great, great canyon. And just before I shot this image, I photographed the great gallery pictographs further up the canyon. Mm -hmm. I should say further down the canyon. <laughs> and uh, that image was made anyway poster for Canyonlands. But the Horseshoe Canyon image, I like because when I noticed that, I saw the, the juxtaposition of several different elements. I saw the juxtaposition of forms and shapes and light and shade and mass. I mean, if you look at the image, you see that the tree, the uh, cottonwood tree, is very small in comparison with cliff. So there is an opposite. I kind of call that visual irony. The irony of textures is there, too. You've got the very, very coarse textures on the cliff face, and you've got the very, very delicate textures of the cottonwood tree. And, of course, there's the the black and white, the dark and the light contrast differences. So uh, I think those are the things that I like most about that image. All of, all of the contrasts in that image are very interesting. And you, you have the tree, which pretty much matches the, the light value of the rock face, but it's set against the darker bit of the canyon behind it. Yes. Um, and, and a beautiful, it's not a center line, it's just slightly off center, but a great sense of, of vertical lines in this piece. And then a little tree, which is completely unvertical lines. Yes. You are not exclusively, however, a black and white photographer. You, you tend to go black and white when you're dealing with rocks, but you go for color when you're dealing with trees and, and other elements. What makes you make that decision, whether you're shooting black and white or color? Sometimes the decision is not made on the scene. Sometimes it's made in post-processing. But of course, back in back when I was shooting film, four by five film, I had to make those decisions on the scene. So I just feel that if color is an important integral part of the image, then it should be color. Otherwise, I think that black and white certainly shows the soul of the image. And that's my favorite thing. That's, that's what I truly identify with. 
<laughs> I, I, I'm chuckling because there we go. I mean, we're talking about the soul of an image again. And, yeah. and I, I, I am coming to believe the older I get that photographers are a pretty spiritual bunch. There's something in the physical world that we see hiding in there that we're trying to get our lenses to bring out a little bit. You also have interior pictures. You know, inter- I mean, you've got a, a great picture of what looks like an abandoned home with a beautiful staircase. Do you want to be known as a landscape photographer or do you want to be considered an, you know, an all around? What, what images do you think most define your way of looking at the world? Well, yeah, I think I prefer to be known as just a photographer, but people categorize me as a landscape photographer because, for one thing, those are the photographs they see the most. And for another thing, those have the most universal appeal. They do indeed. You have a special affinity with your landscape stuff for Death Valley. Is that by accident or is there something there that keeps calling you back? Yes, there is something there that keeps uh, keeps calling me back. My first trip to Death Valley was 1966 with my parents. That's before I started photographing. And I fell in love with Death Valley. And um, ever since then, I've considered it my uh, sort of home away from home. And uh, there is just something about it. I think it's the, the vastness, the emptiness, yet the excitement of the canyons and uh, the Jeep roads. The history of the area is a major factor, too, for me. Now, I think you can't enjoy Death Valley to the fullest without really understanding some of its history. Well, how, how do you photograph history? Well, a ghost towns, that sort of thing. But I'm not really photographing history, but I'm saying that that's the kind of thing that draws me back to Death Valley over and over again. It, it it is a remarkable place. I've had the good fortune to be at Stovepipe Wells a few times, and it, it, it's an environment that is really sort of frustrating. I think you know, as a photographer, because it is always alluring. It could be noon, it could be midnight, it could be sunrise, it could be the you know, it, it doesn't matter. You you right. cannot walk outside around there without seeing a photograph all three hundred and sixty degrees. Last question: You teach a number of workshops. One of these days, I do be lovely to attend one. Tell me what you find yourself saying most often to the students that, that come to you for uh, a little bit of career development. What, what's the most common bit of teaching you find yourself doing? Well, uh, I think there's a couple of key things, one of which I discussed previously about practicing awareness and taking your time in a sense, letting the subject prevent itself to you instead of you forcing the subject. I think that that's a very, very key thing. 
And another key thing is that I do hand out four by five cutout covers to help students with composing images, which is actually more fun than looking through a camera. At least for me it is, because <laughs> you can walk around with one of these cards and you basically start seeing compositions everywhere, and that's really cool. I like that idea a lot. Yeah. Directors use the same technique, but they don't necessarily use cards. Usually they just you know put their hands up in a... U shape in front yep, of your yep. face, and they frame things that way. Well, man, I mean, so composition, patience, awareness—a master printer. I mean, you've hit every note here, and the work is impressive. Thank you, sir. I've I've enjoyed every minute of this. Well, thank you. Me too. Thanks for inviting me. Frames because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.